Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. My name is Greg Ashman and with me for this episode is Glenn Savage, an Associate Professor at the University of Western Australia who is an expert in education reform and the author of the book The Quest for Revolution in Australian Schooling Policy. Welcome Glenn. Thank you. Um, Now first of all could you tell me a little bit about yourself? What's the life journey that has led you to the point of digging through the undergrowth of Australian school reform? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't think that if, if I'd gone back 25 years ago, there's absolutely no way I would have imagined that I'd be doing what I do now. I really didn't like school as a, as a kid. Um, in fact, I liked it to begin with, but then as I got into my you know, teenage punk revolution years, I decided that I was anti-establishment and didn't want anything to do with it. So the idea that I would then go on to become a school teacher uh, and then go on to become an academic of education policy sort of would be outlandish to 15-year-old me. But yeah, I, I, initially, I initially studied journalism and um, became a music journalist. So the, the start of my kind of professional life was working as a journo, like in the arts and music space. And then I guess, you know, you can only have have so much um, rock and roll lifestyle and lack of money before you start thinking I can do something else with my life. So, and that thing that I thought I'd do would be to go back and, and become an English teacher. And so I, I went back and my mum's a teacher, we've got educators in the family, as is often the case. Um, so I was compelled around this idea, this sort of vision um, that I would go back and teach poetry under eucalypt trees and have the kids in awe at the beauty of language and things like that. And um, the reality was very, very, very different. I finished my dip ed um, and pretty much moved straight to the UK and worked in London um, in, in a bunch of schools over there that were some of the most disadvantaged schools in, in the Western world, really. Um, really challenging context. Um, you know, you can imagine, and I'm sure your listeners can, some of the scenarios in those schools, um, kids getting stabbed, kids getting shot, um, I ended up in hospital with pneumonia at one point because I was just so emotionally exhausted. Um, but what that did for me, the time in London, was I enrolled in a master's degree during that period, um, you know, a research master's, and I became really passionate about inequality um, and the role that government plays in particular and the system. Didn't really understand much about politics at that point. I'd never studied politics at the undergrad level, but I just wanted to know more about why we have this system where these kids that I see every day in school come to school so disadvantaged and the the system doesn't really do much to move them forward in a social mobility sense. So I got really hung up on ideas of reproduction, class, education, and then that really compelled me to do my PhD, um, which I did at the University of Melbourne, that looked at equity policies in Australian schooling. And so it was it was there doing the PhD at Melbourne, working with some really smart people and some excellent mentors that my knowledge of policy, politics um, really developed. And then I got a postdoc after that uh, with Jack Keating, who uh, the late Jack Keating, who sadly passed away. Um, but he was a federalism scholar. He was a, a labor man. Um, and he really just, he expanded my knowledge uh, from the level of this is what happens at schools, which is what I'd been focused on, um, like this is policy at a school level, to this is how it works in the complex 
organism of Australian federalism. And so that really drove me down a path of wanting to understand more about um, national reform, the role of the federal government relative to states and territories. And that's pretty much dominated the last decade of my work. Cool, cool. So um, I want to get into all of that. I mean, obviously, what I'm interested in is clearly how how I don't personally, and I don't think that the system is delivering the kinds of reforms that we need. Um, yeah. And I'm interested in exploring that. And that's that's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you. But to set a bit of context um, around that. Um, so some people will be listening to this podcast from out of, outside Australia. Um, and as I understand it, when Australia was first formed as a federation, education was basically left entirely to the states. It wasn't something that they felt that they needed to uh, deal with at a, at a federal level. Um, however, in more recent times, the federal government has assumed more of a role. Now, part of your book is, is about that process of assuming yeah. that role and what that means. But can you just unpack, particularly for someone who's unfamiliar with how education works in Australia, um, what the current state of play is, who's in charge of, of, of what, if you can actually um, d decide that anyone is in charge of any particular bit and what that looks like? Well, it's funny you say that because I, I had a paper out a few years ago called Who's Steering the Ship? Yes. And it was asked as a question because who knows who's really steering the ship in Australian schooling. But, you know, I, I teach a few courses on education policy at the master's level. And, um, you know, I always start those courses with federalism because I say to students, you really can't understand how education policy works in Australia without understanding that constitutional division of labour um, and the history of that and how it's changed, but also funding. So follow the money, so to speak, as a, as a key part of that. Because you're right, you know, when the constitution was established here in Australia, um, you know, the schools were not listed as a, you know, a role of the federal government. So they became a residual power of the states. And then so since then, you know, technically speaking, constitutionally speaking, states and territories are in charge of schools. But um, yeah, a lot has changed since the Constitution. And following um, the Second World War in particular, um, the federal government essentially seized the power to collect um, tax. And as a result of that, um, well, they actually promised they'd give that power back to the states after the war, but funnily enough, they, they didn't. So what we ended up with in Australia was a situation where um, the federal government was collecting all the income tax from people, um, whereas the states were still having to fund really expensive social services like education and so on. And there became what we call technically vertical fiscal imbalance, where the states became reliant upon the federal government to give money back to them by various payments to help fund the social services they are responsible for. So that's a, that's kind of a, a brief version of it. But what we've seen since the 1970s, 80s, but particularly the 90s, is a, a hugely increased interest on the part of the federal government and the federal minister uh, to exert control over what happens in schools. Um, and they've done that, as I've just sort of tried to set up, through money. So they don't, they, they don't run the school, so they can't exactly set the policy direction there, but they can offer the states and territories uh, financial incentives to sign on to reforms that, you know, align with the federal government's 
uh, politics or their, you know, their policy agenda. So it really all begins in, in around the late 80s. We had the Hobart Declaration. There's this big declaration where the federal, state and territory governments came together and they agreed for the kind of first time that they'd pursue a range of national level reforms in schools to try and bring the schooling systems, which were very um, diverse, um, and it had very different outcomes and inputs going into them and to try to bring them onto more of a similar page to make them more consistent. Um, and that led to the first attempt to try and create a national curriculum in Australia in the early 1990s. That was a complete failure for a whole range of reasons, but it started off a kind of trend towards thinking about schooling, to imagining schooling um, in more of a national way. Um, and then since then, it's developed over a series of declarations, a lot more money by the federal government to where we are now. Um, in the book, I sort of, I argue that the education revolution period, and for people who don't know what that means, when the federal Labor government was elected um, in 2007, Kevin Rudd and Minister, the Education Minister, Julia Gillard, they came to power, you know, promising Australia a revolution in schooling. And that revolution was pretty broad in scope. Part of that was a, a national curriculum again, you know, to try and make that happen. National testing, standardised testing, national teaching standards, a completely new model for, for school funding, and a whole bunch of other things that form part of various agreements. So I take that as a kind of starting point in the book. And then the book kind of tells a policy history, a fairly critical policy history at times of what's happened during that education revolution phase but also after because even though Labor were only in power from 2007 to 2013 the reforms that they put in place under the education revolution were were, were vast in scope and they've had a huge impact since then they still um, drive in a lot of ways what we see going on in schools now. Yeah so we're, we're still sort of um, delivering on that Labour policy of the back end of the, the noughties, aren't we, really? Um, what, one of the things that fascinated me, so I arrived in Australia in about, uh, in 2010. Uh, so I actually taught in, uh, in West London. So I taught in um, one school similar to the one that you've described. I taught in some more uh, suburban schools as well. And um, one of the things that, that surprised me is was this plethora of different um, like qualifications like the VCE in Victoria and the HSC in um, New South Wales. And I, I said to, to, to someone once, a, a policy person who I met at a, a conference, what, why have we got this? Why do we have this structure? Why don't we just have one uh, school leaving certificate for the whole of Australia? And she explained to me, well, the idea is that uh, the different states can do different things. And then if something works in, say, Queensland, and what they're doing in Victoria is less effective, um, then, we, then everyone can say, okay, well, maybe we'll do the thing that Queensland's doing. But it doesn't seem to work like that. Like most of the states do seem to be doing, I, I can't see huge different philosophical differences. If you look at the UK, for instance, you've got England that's pursuing a fairly, uh, under the Govian reforms, knowledge-rich curriculum, big on phonics. And then you've got Scotland that's doing the whole, OECD, PISA, 21st century skills, competencies thing. And there's quite a contrast between the two. And, and over time, that's an interesting natural experiment to see what will happen. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening in Australia. We, we all seem to be doing variations on 
the same thing. And I, I wonder why that's arisen and, and, and um, whether you've got any sort of thoughts on, 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 on what's reproducing that. Yeah, this is such an interesting question. And I almost, my mind is boggling trying to know where I want to begin um, answering it. I mean, partly it's about history and it's about the Federation and it's about the establishment of little fiefdoms. You know, you've got the bureaucracies, you know, in the state and territory levels have been really powerful. And the, you build this whole bureaucratic apparatus around something like the HSC or the VCE in Victoria. And then that's people's jobs, that's people's tradition, that's people's history, that's the way we do things, you know, in yeah. this particular place. Um, and people don't want to let go of that. And, you know, I remember sitting with um, Jack Keating, my former mentor, in a meeting, um, and he was saying, you know, back in the 80s, when he worked, you know, with a minister at the time, he said, no one ever asked, what's, you know, what's New South Wales doing? Or what's Queensland doing? They're like, we don't care what they're doing. We're doing what we're doing. Um, it turned out in time they were doing pretty similar things, as you say. But the the optic, like the way of seeing it, wasn't focused on a comparative sense of like, how's their curriculum? How's their pedagogy? It was about what we do. This is our system. And the kind of the, the emergence of this national agenda in schools over a period of decades has forced people, whether they like it or not, to start to compare um, you know, a whole range of elements of, of the schooling system. Um, you know, that first attempt to try and map out a national curriculum um, in the 90s was super interesting. If you look at the documents back then, you know, some things were different, but often they were very similar. And then again, in the mid 2000s under the Howard government, you know, the Howard government was keen on bringing all those certificates at the year 12 level into one Australian certificate of education. Yeah. And there was a really interesting report that was authored by Jeff Masters and colleagues on that. You know, and I remember one bit of the report, they're saying, basically, you've got eight different systems, um, all arguing that they're doing exactly the same thing in this particular area of maths in year 11 or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, we've got like 27 subjects that claim to be doing the same thing. Um, so when you look at it like that, it seems absurd, right? Like why in a country that's, you know, relatively small, I think whole of Australia is smaller than the state of Florida in the US. Why do we have so many things? And that's been part of the interesting conversation that's taken place. It's, it's forced people to say, where are we similar? Where are we different? How can we kind of borrow or cross-pollinate things that work well? My concern, though, is that as part of that, we've maybe gone too far in the other direction, and this is a slightly different uh, topic here, which I'm sure you're interested in getting to, but it's around, do we have to align things and make things so common, so standardised, so harmonised, and might we be losing some of that, what you were getting at before, which is the laboratories of innovation that can take place at a state level or even a local level, and the kind of forms of competitive federalism, which are sort of central to the ways that federations are set up. Um, so that's a question that I kind of explore um, in the book. So it's interesting, isn't it? So we, we've got um, we've got these separate states who are doing their own thing and are wedded to their own traditions. A bit of alignment comes in, and they start then comparing themselves to each other, um, and that might be good because in in comparison in in theory if if new south wales is doing something really good 
and Western Australia isn't, and then Western Australia can learn from them. But then as we push this alignment even further, you're then concerned that we get, again, erase the differences and we get rid of this engine of, of uh, innovation. So, and this is what you call, what you term, term alignment thinking. Um, so yeah. can you pinpoint the, um, I suppose there isn't one, but can you sort of pinpoint the origin of alignment thinking and, and how it fed into that um, uh, education revolution started by the, the Labour government? Yeah, so with this idea of alignment, I, I had this idea in my mind when I was, so I had an ARC project a few years ago that was looking at these dynamics around national reform. And as part of that project, I was interviewing a huge amount of um, really senior policy stakeholders across the country. And a lot of those interviews end up in the book that we're, we're talking about, my new book. Um, and as I was talking to them, I started to hear the word alignment getting used a lot oh, we need to align this, we need to bring this into alignment, and so on. And then I was in Paris back in the day when I, when I could be in Paris, um, and I was talking to people at the OECD, and they were using this language more than anyone else. Oh, it's about alignment, it's about standards, it's about this and that. And they said to me, oh, have you read this report that we put out? And they recently put out a series of reports on alignment, and yeah. obviously, being the OECD, they're not just talking about Australia, they're talking about the OECD nations, and they're talking about unitary systems and federal systems. But in those reports, I was fascinated by the almost uncritical way in which sameness and commonality and harmonisation of very diverse systems and schools and so on was seen as, again, uncritically as a good thing. That's what we need to do. That's where we need to be moving. Like the end game of, of the reform, um, uh, you know, endeavour is to reach a state of alignment, of sameness. And, and that started to worry me. I mean, not only from my old school punk rock days of, you know, the system and so on, and, you know, and, and sort of fighting for difference and diversity, but wondering what happens when, you know, we all, we all start to align ourselves to maybe a singular body of evidence around a particular practice, or we start to say, this is what works. So we all have to do this. You know, does that work everywhere? Just because it works somewhere, where we, we can't be sure that it's going to work everywhere. So that sort of interesting question around political claims that alignment is the solution with concerns from, I guess, what you'd call the sociology of knowledge and the use of evidence and the kind of what works movement that we've seen um, in recent decades started to converge for me. And I thought, actually, I want to try and, map this out a bit more and develop a kind of theory of what I call alignment thinking in the book. And I call it alignment thinking because I don't think there's just this one, when we say policy alignment, people have different, they bring different things to it. Yeah. So, you know, you might talk to a minister and they'll say it's this and you'll talk to someone else and they'll say it's something else. So, but what there is, is a kind of family likeness to this way of thinking that I call alignment thinking which is really a kind of technical way of reasoning about policy, where you say we need techniques and we need mechanisms that standardise, harmonise and kind of impose order on things. Um, and often it's a way of trying to impose sameness and, and order on schooling systems or schools that were previously more diverse. So we're trying to make things common. 
Um, and the view is if we make them common and we base those policies on evidence-based practices that show us what works, then everything will improve. Outcomes will improve, will drive forward and so on. So that's the claim, I think, that still permeates the majority of policies that we see in Australia at the national level, the federal, from the federal minister and at the state level. The thing is, though, I don't think it's working. So this is where I sort of, you know, have the critique of it. And I say, this is the claim, but we're going the other way, you know, and not only are we going into kind of free fall on a lot of the key indicators like PISA, um, but it's creating political dysfunction. So I don't know how much you want me to go into that politics side of it, but um, it's causing problems within the apparatus of federalism. It's, it's muddying lines around who's in control. It's making it more difficult for states to exert control over their own systems when they've partially lost the control over the development of their own policies. So, I'm, I mean, I can talk more about that, but I think there's a bunch of problems, both in an outcome sense and in a kind of politics and governance sense that's, that's sort of generated from this alignment thinking. One thing I'd pick up on on that, um, if if I just sort of riff on that for a little bit, is you talked about what works and and that that sort of movement, and um, I'm interested in what works. I, that's what I try and do my research in. And um, but I think that if you go to the OACD and ask them what works, um, you don't. I don't think it's necessarily something that's supported by the evidence. So it could be that we're all aligning around something, but that something is not necessarily supported by this. A good example, the OECD's definition of um, good teaching that they put out in a document a few years ago is that it's student-oriented. Now, they did go on to try and define that a little bit, and then they ask a survey question to students. Now, you can argue over the validity of the survey question, and, and many do, and there's a whole lot to be said about that. But on their own measure of this thing that they say is important, on their own measure, um, the data suggests that the more of it that is used in classrooms, the more student orientated, according to their definition, teaching is, the worse the outcomes. And there's a yeah. paper where across 62 countries, so this is not just comparing country A with country B, but within country A, um, the, the, the more student orientated the um, teaching, the worse the outcomes. Now, there's lots of things that could account for that. It's a correlation. And so we don't know whether uh, there's some third factor at play or whatever. But even by their own definition, the thing that they're suggesting that is effective um, doesn't appear to be very effective. So I wonder, is it that the alignment around these, uh, what works, is not working because uh, um, it, it's, it, the, the, it doesn't work in all these different contexts? Or is it that maybe it's based on fundamentally flawed premises. And if it was based on something that was a yeah. bit more solid, maybe it would have more of a chance. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think in some sort of fantasy world where we could know for sure what works. Yeah. Um, and then we aligned our practices and policies to that. And then we saw that it worked. Yeah. And we could work out that that was more than just correlation, that it was caught, there's a causal effect, then that'd be great. Like, yeah. you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need my book um, yeah. to critique it. But I don't think it is working in that way. And I think that this is where the politics of evidence, uh, the politics concerning evidence and knowledge production are so important because 
at different times, you know, you see ministers and practitioners and bureaucrats and school leaders and so on telling you this is what works. And, you know, there's so many examples. You've just offered a few. I mean, I think some of the examples around the phonics debate are interesting. Um, debates around, you know, discovery-based learning or the use of local knowledge in curriculum as the starting point for content. Some of these things I've heard people stand up and say, this is what works. We know that this is what works. So if we go and choose, if we choose, and this is a political choice here, and this is where the power comes into it, to say we're going to tie our policies to that body of evidence and then we're going to try and bring everyone into a state of alignment around that and then it ultimately doesn't work, that's, that's a problem. So in a way, what I argue in the book is I draw upon sort of sociologists, philosophers um, who argue that we need to be wary of um, homogenous systems of, you know, creating kind of like monocultures. And, you know, there's plenty of research out there in the natural sciences and in the social sciences, you know, that would suggest that, you know, if we, you know, and I mean, agriculture is a really good example. If you create monocultures, um, you put the whole system at risk of collapse. You know, you need a sense of diversity in agriculture. You can see this in your garden. I'm a big gardener, right? Like if we only plant tomatoes, they might work well, um, you know, for a few years, but eventually by ruining the diversity of that ecosystem, you've, you, you, your tomatoes start dying and then eventually it's hard to get them back um, in the way that they were before. So I think there's that sort of monoculture argument, which I think is powerful. Even if we accept that having diversity will mean that some people are going to be doing things more effectively and other thing, people are going to be doing things le less effectively, I'd rather that as long as the entire ship is at a higher level than if we tie everybody to the same thing and then ultimately realise that that thing doesn't work because then the whole ship goes down. Um, you know, and this is where we come back to the competitive federalism argument, because if New South Wales or Western Australia, for example, were to tie their, their, their themselves to the wrong body of evidence, so to speak, and the result was to be disaster for that system, we would still have seven other systems, you know, that haven't gone down that path. So what I argue for is not that I definitely am not arguing in the book that we don't align anything. And I'm definitely not arguing in the book that we don't have standards or anything like that. But what I'm arguing is that we need to try and reverse or rebalance in some ways the reform script. So at the moment, I think the default is top down and standardized. And it's been like that for quite some time. And what I try and argue, which might be of you know, interest to your listeners, it generally does resonate with teachers, is that we need to look at the profession and what their role is as experts and as evidence creators. You know, we need to see that the profession itself is capable of creating valid judgments in, in specific places and times. And they can share that evidence through networks, through collabora collaboration and so on. And if it emerges that that evidence spreads more widely and widely and widely, that cross-pollination might lead over time to more sameness across systems. But the sameness has been generated in an organic and bottom-up way rather than being generated through the imposition of, say, a federal minister's politics of the time. There's a sort of anti-fragile argument. If you want your 
system to be robust and, and not break down. You need different um, approaches to coexist because it, um, if, if one is not working, you've got another one to draw on. And you, you talk about that at the state level, um, but obviously another way that this has been experimented with is the whole neoliberal school level approach, school autonomy, school uh, choice. Um, I often get, um, not often, but sometimes I get contacted by journalists and they've got a story about a school uh, and they perceive, I think, that it's a school that I would not approve of because of the way that they're going about things. And, um, and I'm offered to, uh, they offer me to, to, you know, comment on this. And I, well, first of all, I don't like to comment on individual schools. That's not my, my thing. Yeah. But I actually am in favour of there being schools out there doing things that I disagree with because I would like a diversity of different schools out there um, because that then tries out these different ideas. We can see if we've got something in place like NAPLAN or the VCE or for whatever their flaws are, we have got some measures that we can compare different models against and maybe mm. we could improve those measures. Um, but also it, it, it gives us, um, it gives us uh, the, the, the only problem Sorry, the only problem with that I see, so I'm uh, in the independent sector um, at yeah. the moment, and I look around and I see lots and lots of schools that are, in theory, independent, that's, that's the definition of them, but they're all pursuing very, very similar things. So they all talk the same thing. You go to the conference, you get the, the lunch with the, the pumpkin and uh, pine nut salad, and they all tell you all the same stuff about what they're doing. So... Is it a bit of a pipe dream to hope that we might have this diverse landscape with lots of different schools innovating in different ways? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I um, am doing some research at the moment in schools in WA and, you know, moving around the state. You know, I was in a regional school two weeks ago. I was in a remote school weeks before that. And I think there is difference. Like, you know, I mean, I, I see schools doing things very differently, um, like interpreting the same policy differently and making sense of that in different ways. So a good example of that would be, um, you know, the teaching standards, for example. So we have this national set of teaching standards that are supposed to outline what teachers should know and what they should be able to do. But if you go into a school and ask, you know, a principal, like, what do you make of this particular bit of the standard? And what are you doing with that bit of the standard? You do see quite a bit of... Um, diversity there and that diversity can be positive and I think it can be negative um, sometimes as well so in that sense like you know the teaching standards and so this is interesting I'm taking a sort of a slightly aside here but I think some people it's interesting what people choose to take from your work when they read it yeah. and so I've had people read my book and they've jumped too quickly I think to assuming that I'm against standards I'm against alignment of any sort and, and I actually try really hard in the book to say that's not what I mark. Yeah, you do. You know, yeah. What, yeah, exactly. So I, And I do it multiple times. I sort of say, you know, I'm not arguing against this. I think certain things that we have, like NAPLAN, you know, I'm, I'm unpopular amongst some of my more critical colleagues, you know, because I have said multiple times on the, on the radio and TV that I think it's important to have something like NAPLAN. Um, and so... I'm definitely not arguing that. And I actually think from a social justice point of view, you know, and, and I was saying earlier that kind of equity and justice was what was driving my initial interest in, in, you know, being a researcher. I think some sense of commonality or some sense of agreement around this is what 
the kind of knowledge is that we think is important to teach young people or you know, these are the kinds of practices that we would like to see teachers adopting. That's important because, you know, I've got in mind here people like Michael Young who've argued, you know, it's in, some knowledge is powerful. Some knowledge is more powerful than other knowledge. And, you know, we need to make sure that young people are not just having the, the circumstances of their upbringing reproduced for them. Um, otherwise, we won't be able to have social mobility. So through things like a national curriculum or, um, through national teaching standards, there's a sense to which you can get people around the table and try and agree in some sort of broad sense on what we think is important for our young people and what we think our teachers should be doing. My concern, though, is when we start to get very lockstep versions of that happening or where, you know, the the we don't allow enough flexibility for people to adapt and adopt it to their, to their local context. So I, I often say to people, I think we should look at those documents like the teaching standards of all the curriculum and take them seriously, but also be critical about them and to say, you know, is this working here in my school right now? Um, you know, things like the high impact teaching strategies or the various toolkits or, or lists of best practices that we see. Great, interesting, but we don't have to, you know, accept from the outset that they are the answer. We should see them as like an invitation to test you know, to test something at the local level. I think, I think educators are smart, intelligent people who know their students and they should be given the freedom to, um, to experiment with those ideas and not assume that they have to do it in one particular way. Um, yeah, that's a, I've answered the question in various ways, but <laughs> don't know if I answered it at all in the end. Oh, there we go. No, it's very interesting. I, I think it's a tension, isn't it? It's always going to be a tension between having a kind a chaotic mess that doesn't make any uh, I mean like I think and, and and again I think this comes back to to our, our basic principles uh, ultimately there are some things that we need to agree on and I'm quite happy for those de debates to be quite raucous uh, democratic yeah. debates uh, I, I people moan about making the curriculum political um, and I get why they don't like the sorts of um, discussions we've had recently say around the history curriculum it's it's yeah, it's yeah. a bit distasteful for people but it but essentially a curriculum is is it's got to be democratically debated it can't be something that people behind closed doors decide for us because we've got to have some buy-in so that means that people from across the political spectrum have to have their say and i've said before that the ultimate um, result of that should be something that satisfies nobody in its entirety. But we've got to gr agree on a few things. We can't say it's okay, for instance, I don't believe, and I'd be happy to make this argument publicly, that it's okay for kids to leave school and they can't read and they can't write, but they've uh, d done these other things. And I think that a primary goal of schooling is, is, is literacy. And if we can all agree on that, um, we can then look at different models and we can experiment around that. And I also yeah. think that some of these alignment uh, mechanisms. So, you know, I'm quite sceptical. This is why I picked up on your What Works earlier. Um, like a lot of people will refer to, say, Hattie's um, mm. meta-analyses or the, or the high-impact teaching strategies that you refer to. And I would question the, the strength of the evidence behind some of those as well, uh, which yeah. brings us back to this idea that you mooted of, of the profession trying to take some kind of control. Uh, or, yeah, or, yeah. or or driving that a little bit. What what do you think that might look like? Well, I actually, 
Yeah, I mean, listeners, we haven't pre-planned this, but I actually have an, an answer here ready yeah. to go because two weeks ago, I, I'm involved with a project at the moment that's looking at how school boards operate. And through that, it's about dem democratic governance at the local school level. It's about how parents and community members engage with schools, how schools come to decisions around strategic priorities, including curriculum. And there was a very interesting discussion in one of the schools that I was at about the HITS, the high impact teaching strategies. Yeah. And one of the teachers was giving this update to the board on how they'd use the high impact teaching strategies. And they were saying, oh, you know, we, we use this, this, oh, and this one really didn't work. No, it really just, it just wasn't working. And, and the principal sort of said, oh, what did you do? Oh, we just kept going with it. We've kept going with it, it's, it but we don't think it's working, but, we're, but we'll just keep persisting. And, and I raised the question of like, well, why keep persisting? You know, like, what was it about this that wasn't working? And when I asked that question, there was a whole range of really rich, insightful um, responses that came out about why in this particular school, that particular strategy wasn't working. And, and my response humbly, you know, I wasn't trying to take over anything, was just to say, well, maybe that you, you abandon that in this school, or maybe you work with all that evidence you just created um, about what seems to work better and develop your own approach to that, that particular dimension. So what, what I'd like to see is not that we get rid of hits or we get rid of like, yeah. you know, it's fine for people to have a copy of visible learning on their, on their desk or whatever. And I'm sure a lot of teachers do, but, but the point I don't think is that we become hatified as people say, or that yeah. we, um, we become the hits, they become the, the, the beginning and end of the conversation. It's that we try and take on all these different and various competing forms of evidence and apply them to our own context and say, well, if they're working for the, the kids that are in front of me today, then that's a good thing. But if they're not, um, or if they're leaving something out, like you say, that you think is really important to the creation, the creation of an educated, competent citizen, then, you know, we need to add to it. We can't just accept that the evidence we're being offered provides like all the answers. And even if it does, I, I, I was very struck a few years ago when I saw Dylan Williams speak about embedded formative assessment. And he said, if you embed one formative assessment practice into your teaching, in a year you're doing well because it's really hard to change the way you're teaching yeah. and yeah. and so it might even be that there are five things that do have a lot of evidence behind them but you might want to park four of them for the time being and work on one of them and get that going and, and I think one of the problems we have in schools and, and why perhaps we don't have this diversity of approaches and we do have this churn where, where people are, are pursuing the same things is because we have a, a yearly cycle of this is this year's thing we're going to go at this oh that didn't work right now this is next year's thing we're going to go at that and it breeds a, a sense of cynicism amongst teaching staff and, and I think the way that reforms happened in Australia over the last two decades there's a lot of fatigue amongst that profession like in terms of change fatigue I mean I was involved in a large project when I was at Melbourne Uni that was it was the first evaluation of the rollout of the national teaching standards. And so we were working closely with AITSL at the time. And, you know, a lot of the teachers we were talking to were, were pretty much saying to us, we haven't engaged with the standards. We're, we're too busy trying to work out what's going on with the curriculum or work out what, you know, so there were all these other things. Like we, we introduced too much too soon, I think, that, that, and big things 
like not just little things, you know, new curriculum, NAPLAN is a new test, new teaching standards, all these things happen like in a short period of time and people became kind of um, befuddled in, uh, in some cases around what they were supposed to do. And then laid on top of that, you have all these claims around, you know, high impact strategies and the evidence you should be working with. And as a teacher, I mean, I, I was a teacher for five years and, you know, I understand um, to that extent what it's like. You're often just trying to make it through the day and get your lesson plans done and, and, and all that. And I'm not saying that's an excuse for not engaging with these things, but it makes it really, really difficult. Um, okay, so final question. I'm I'm not happy with um, the state of the education system, um, and I would like to reform it. Okay, yeah. so um, more and more alignment um, according to your thesis. Some alignment, good. More and more alignment around these uh, things that we've identified as what works, whether they do or not, is not the yeah. solution. So, um, what should I be pursuing if I if I'm worried about you know uh, improving Australia's education system? So as a teacher, I think it's, uh, you know, if, if I was addressing a teacher with this question, it would be some of the things that we've been talking about, about, you know, how you critically engage as an individual with evidence and how you're, as a school leader, how your school does, and then also how you then might network with other schools or other people in order to share that, that body of evidence. So I, I feel that, and I see this happening in some cases in schools really well through school networks or school clusters where people have actually formed local networks of kind of evidence creation um, and knowledge sharing. And that's much more in line with that organic or bottom-up approach that I was talking about before where people have the capacity to experiment, to solve problems, to collaborate and to create more um, situational or context-specific solutions and evidence. So that would be, my argument would be do more of that and do less of the um, bowing down to the guru or to the kind of, you know, what I call the global consultocracy that claim to have all the answers, um, to take, not to ignore that, but to take it in and adapt it into the, to the local level. And, I, and honestly, I think teachers are fatigued by, you know, the kind of flood of toolkits and strategies and best practice checks, checklists and all that. So, you know, take it with some sense of seriousness, but don't tie yourself to it entirely. So maybe governments could help fund that sort of stuff more. You know, we put a lot of effort at the moment and millions and millions of dollars into trying to provide evidence repositories to tell us what works. But I think we should be putting some money into trying to inspire that local organic, um, you know, school and network level production and sharing of evidence. So that's one thing. Um, as if I was addressing a policymaker, I would say, come on, we need to move beyond the industrial model of thinking, which still continues to see educators like factory workers on a production line. You know, I think the way that ministers talk, the way that some bureaucrats talk about teachers is still this sense that they're like cogs in the machine. You know, if we can just standardise their practice and get them to do what works, then everything's going to be going to be rosy. Um, I think there's a fundamental problem here, like a fundamental misunderstanding about how relevant that sort of approach, that sort of standardised approach is to schooling. Um, I've got in my mind here medical researcher Robert Weirs. He, 
he argued in this really good article, I can't remember what it's called, on, I think it's called What's the Problem with Standards-Based Reform or something along those lines. He makes this really interesting argument about how standards work in routine-based settings, you know, where there's reproducibility of tasks across, you know, from day to day, from place to place. But then he makes a really good argument that in areas of medicine, nursing, and this applies to teaching as well, you know, standards are often not well suited because these professions exhibit the characteristics of what you might call a kind of complex self-organizing system. You know, you have practitioners in particular places and times that need to make sense of uncertain kind of jumble of information and phenomena, and they have to adapt and adopt and they have to make contextually based judgments and, 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 and engage in contextually based actions. So are standards or more standardized modes even appropriate for education to the extent that we think they are? Um, and I guess the meta message, and I can finish on this, would be that linked to both of those points, I think we just need to move beyond what I think is a damaging view that sameness and commonality is the path to improvement. So I think the grand design of the education revolution, it's sense to want to homogenize and to see that as the panacea. It, it hasn't worked. Like if that was going to work, it would have, we would see 15 years later already a turnaround in some of the key indicators. But things have in, in to a large extent gone in the other direction. So I think, and I, I make this point as I said before, I was a bit of a gardener, a bit of a permaculturalist myself, but I think rather than looking at like it's a machine and we want to get the cogs in the machine working better, we should think more like gardeners, you know, like what is the ecosystem of schools and of, um, of schooling systems and how can we promote diverse things to grow and to flourish and to be strong um, in a way that doesn't... Uh, you at the moment we're not doing that we're creating monocultures and i think monocultures are weak um and they will ultimately fail well there you are so <laughs> thanks for that uh glenn uh we could carry on talking for ages i'm sure but um i know you've got a meeting to get to so thank you very much for um for your time and um hopefully we'll speak again soon yeah, and thank you for the opportunity it's been a pleasure mm -hmm.